Hey guys, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Woo, yeah. All right. Let's do a little bit better than that. How's everybody doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to see you guys. Thank y'all for being here. I want to begin today by just saying how much I appreciate and love all of our volunteers, especially our setup team and media team. You guys have no idea what they have gone through this morning, and I won't take a lot of time explaining it other than just to say uh, they added a jewel to their crown in heaven this morning, okay? Guys, can we do, do me a favor? Can we just give it up for those guys? You saw in that time-lapse video, it takes uh, quite a few people, a bunch of us working together to be able to pull off church, and uh, it's, that's what makes it special. I love that, and so I think that, that video was so cool. Thank you to Brooks for putting that together, Brooks Rogers, um, just to give everybody a glimpse inside of what we do, and uh, again, thank you to the media team and the setup team. You guys are incredible. Well, I want to touch on something really quick. Day of prayer, day of prayer. I said it in the announcements. That incredibly handsome guy that did video announcements said it to y'all, but I want to make sure you heard it. Day of prayer is when? Next Saturday, this coming Saturday. And so uh, several of you have told me that you're planning on being here. And so I look forward to, to seeing you and look forward to praying, pressing in together as a church. I really think it's going to be a special day. And so uh, I want to challenge you, if you have not signed up for a time of prayer, I want to encourage you to do that as well. It's online. One other thing as we talk about prayer is this new board. Uh, our creative team designed this board, made this board, and the whole thought behind it is uh, that you would be able to put a name on there. If there's somebody who you're praying that gets saved, somebody who you're inviting to church and you're hoping they're going to respond to that invitation, now don't put their whole name because if they come on Easter, that might be a little weird. So just put a first name, just put some initials. Uh, some of our, our volunteers who are serving today have already done that. There's some markers right down front here. And so I just want to encourage you before you leave today, maybe just put a name on there. And uh, then this coming Saturday... As we pray, we're going to have a prayer guide, and uh, we're also going to have this board. And so you're, the names that you put on that board uh, will be bathed in prayer. And here's what we're praying, guys. We are praying that God would begin to soften hearts even now, that God would begin to break up those hard places, and that whenever Easter gets here, or as you witness, as you share the gospel, that they would be receptive to that, and we're praying that on Easter Sunday we see a great harvest of new believers. Come on, anybody excited about it? Anybody want to see that happen? If it was somebody you love that you wanted to get saved, you would have clapped a little bit louder, okay? So, anyway, we're praying over this board, so I want to encourage you to use that tool. We're just doing everything we can uh, to gauge uh, excitement, to pump up excitement as we go into Easter and as we're praying for your loved ones and your neighbors and your family and your friends. And so, uh, again, anyway, that's the wall. Next Saturday is the day of prayer. 
Guys, for the past few weeks, we have been in this sermon series called Chain Reaction. And uh, the whole sermon series, if you've missed it, it can be encapsulated in one statement, and that is, uh, I have been trying to preach and teach to you, how do you win people to Jesus? We say that in a lot of different ways. We, salvation, how do they get saved? How can new life, that's what we put on the board. Uh, it, uh, we say it in a lot of different ways, but it's the same thought. It's the same thing. We want to help you feel comfortable, help you feel equipped to have conversations around faith, around belief, around leading someone to Jesus. And so I've been sharing a formula with you. Go ahead and put that up there. We've been saying high potency plus close proximity, plus clear communication equals, read that last one with me, maximum impact. If we do all of those, the top three things, and that's what I've been preaching for the past three weeks, if we begin to do all of those things, then we will see maximum impact. But I want to I highlight something. Notice at the bottom, it does not say guaranteed success. It doesn't say that if you have all three of those things working in conjunction, then there will be guaranteed success. I wish we could say that. I wish there was something that we could do to where if we put some things together and we, we, we made the recipe just right, that the cake always baked just the way we wanted it to. That would be incredible. But that's not the way it works. It, it, it's just not. It says maximum impact because... It doesn't, it's not always successful. Now, I don't mean to be a downer. Let me tell you what I'm saying here. One of the things that I have really taken for granted that would be interjected in each and every part of this formula is prayer. And so that was an assumption on my part, an assumption that, that everything we do, all the parts of this formula, we're bathing all of that in prayer, that we are constantly in prayer for this person. And again, that prayer is that the Holy Spirit would woo that person. Guys, come on, you remember when you were wooing your lady? You remember how you were doing all these things to try to win her affection and win her heart? Some of you aren't nodding. It's been a long time. I know that. I know. It's not our job. We cannot get a person saved. But what we can do is we can play our part. Then the Holy Spirit's part, His sole job, everything He does is to point people to the person of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit begins to break down barriers. He begins to soften those places, like I said earlier, so that people will be receptive to the gospel. But even then, even then, God's a gentleman. He is not going to force Himself on anyone. The special thing about love is when love is reciprocated. And that's what God wants. God wants so deeply, not for us to be forced to love Him, not for us to be made to do it, but God wants us to show love back to Him out of, out of an emotion of our heart, out of, because that's really what we want to do, because we really, truly do love Him. And so, again, it doesn't say guaranteed success. It says maximum impact. But as we begin to do what we can do, then God will begin to work, and, uh, and there will be maximum impact. So, again, our part, high potency, Close proximity, clear communication. And so I want to show that to you in Scripture. I want to, I want to show you a time where I felt like, it, where I see very clearly in Scripture there is some maximum impact. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and open, 
We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And I want to talk to you from a parable that honestly many of you probably know. I would venture to say that most people who have never been to church, you don't even know, you're not even sure you believe in Jesus yet. Odds are you know this story that I'm going to read from today, but I want to maybe bring out a little bit different view of it. And so we'll see how it goes. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here we go. And a lawyer stood up. And put him to the test. So this lawyer comes to Jesus and he begins to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer comes and and in essence, here's what he's saying. Okay, God. Okay, Jesus. uh, What do I have to do to make sure that on judgment day, as I stand before the great judge in the sky, as I stand before God Almighty... What do I have to do to make sure I'm going to hear a not guilty verdict? You are not guilty. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. What do I have to do to make sure I get that not guilty verdict? Now notice it says that he's putting him to the test. That part comes a little bit later. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. And he said to him, so Jesus responds, what's written in the law? How does, how does it read to you? How does it read to you? One of the things that's interesting to note is that this lawyer right here, he's not a courtroom lawyer. This is not Ben Matlock. This is, some of you guys are too young for that, but it's not a courtroom lawyer. This gentleman is an expert in the Mosaic law. And so he he knew a lot about the law, so he was a lawyer in the sense of the Mosaic law. And so I love Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't give him an answer because Let's face it, Jesus, as he was teaching, there was a lot of pushback on Jesus. Anything he said was held in, in uh, low regard. Anything he said, well, there was pushback. It was, well, that can't be right. And so he actually answers this guy's question with a question. It's called the Socratic method. And, and so all throughout the scripture, you see that, that Jesus answers a question with a question. And he doesn't do it to be, Jesus doesn't take this approach to be high and mighty or to be pompous. He finds common ground. He knows that this gentleman is a lawyer. He knows that he will have a great understanding about the Mosaic law. So I want to find common ground. So Jesus asks him, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? Verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So this is the lawyer's answer. And then notice what Jesus says. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus says, amen, that's exactly right. Good job. All right, what's, up? what's going on? What's next? And so he, he says this is right. And in other places in Scripture, in the Gospels, Jesus is asked pretty much the same question, and he gives pretty much the same answer. This is a scripturally correct answer because this lawyer is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5. He's quoting from Leviticus 19.18. And so this answer is correct. But I told you from the outset, and Scripture told you, This lawyer was coming to test Jesus. And so here comes the test. Verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
hey, I need to make sure this case is a slam dunk, not guilty. And there's one little thing we need to clear up. Who, who is my neighbor? The reason he asks this question is because in the language the law was written in, in the Hebrew, that word neighbor meant someone that you have an association with. It, it meant someone you would have an association with, somebody you would be around naturally, somebody you would want to be around. But in the Greek, in the language that they are speaking in that day, and the language that the New Testament is written in, that word neighbor means someone who is near. Do you see the difference? Someone I would have association with, well, I can love all of my friends and my family. I can love the people who I'm closest to. It'll be hard some days. It'll be trying. But if that's what I've got to do to get in heaven, come on, some of y'all are laughing. Some of y'all have some families like mine. You're like, that will be hard. But maybe, Jesus, I can do that. But wait, if we're going with the Greek understanding of this word, if, if neighbor means someone who is near me, there's no way. Jesus, look at the people that are around me. This, this Jewish lawyer, he would have looked down on sinners. He would have looked down on people who didn't have the understanding of the Mosaic Law that he did. And so he would have naturally associated with priests. He would have associated with uh, Levites. He would have associated with people that he considered peers. It will be hard enough to love them, but love anybody who's near. So who is my neighbor? And again, he says this to justify himself. But, but pretty much the question that he's asking, here's my paraphrase. Who should I love and who can I ignore? Hey, Jesus, at the end of the day, I, I want to make sure that I can get into heaven. There's not going to be hold up in the courtroom. Who can I love? Who do I love? And who can I ignore? And so again, Jesus doesn't just answer the question. He, he breaks out a parable on him. And this is where it gets into the part that probably many of you know. Verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. You need to understand that this stretch... This road, uh, it was a winding road. There were many blind spots. There were some narrow passageways. It was a robber's paradise. This particular road from Jerusalem to Jericho was known to be especially treacherous. And so this man just falls victim. And so they, they, he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest passed by on the other side, so he didn't help. Okay, well, man, I was kind of expecting him to help. Okay, let's keep going. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side too. But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. 
It's interesting to know, I, I shared with you just a few moments ago, that this lawyer, some of the people who he would have seen as peers, not sinners who he would have looked down on, but many of the people who he would have looked at as peers were the priest and the Levite. They, they were the religious people. They were people who knew the law and kept the law and people who did good and people who you would think about as being upstanding in society. And yet, Jesus says that both of these men, not only do they not help, they actually go out of their way so that they don't get too close to Him and they keep going. But then verse 33, but a Samaritan... But a Samaritan. Now, when we hear that term Samaritan, we, there's a good connotation to it. We hear good Samaritan and we think good things, but it's because of this parable. It's because of the teaching of Jesus. When this lawyer heard Samaritan this day, he would have rolled his eyes. He would have scoffed. Oh, Samaritans. And the reason for that is because at some point along the way, Jewish people intermarried with Gentiles. And so God warned them not to do that. He wanted to keep Jewish people within their own faith. He wanted to keep them together. And yet these people, they break rank. They marry Gentiles. And so when they had children, their children were half Jew and half Gentile. Well, to the Jewish people, and especially to the religious Jewish people, they viewed the Samaritans. They viewed those, that group of people as being half-breeds. As a matter of fact, that's really what they called them. Oh, they're just half-breeds. They're not even a real person. They're just half of what we are. And so the fact that Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of this story, it flies in the face of everything that this Jewish man would have wanted to be true. And yet the reason the Samaritan is the hero of this story is because he did something the priest and the Levite didn't. He took action. He took action. He knew what I want all of us to walk away from here today knowing, and that is, my neighbor is my opportunity. My neighbor is my opportunity. I want you to say that with me on the count of three. One, two, three. My neighbor is my opportunity. Let's do it one more time. My neighbor is my opportunity. Again, who is a neighbor? Jesus would define it as anyone who's near you. Anyone who you come into contact with on any given day, that is your neighbor, and my neighbor is my opportunity. Which really flies in the face of the bystander effect. Have any of you ever heard of the bystander effect? Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple of you. Um, for the rest of you, I love when I get to like teach you something you don't know. And I, I, I heard this a couple years ago. It's incredible. So, so the bystander effect uh, was actually made famous by Catherine Genevieve in March 1964. This is absolutely a true story. Catherine Genevieve, she was living in New York City. She got off work. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. And she's returning to her apartment building. And on her way, she is confronted with a robber. And this robber takes her purse, takes her money, and then stabs her. Well, as the robber was drawing close, the reports go that Catherine began to scream. She began to cry out for help, plead for her life, especially when the gentleman stabbed her. 
she just cried out. Later it was found out in the investigation that there were several witnesses, that people saw this. As a matter of fact, one gentleman, he raised his window in the apartment building, stuck his head out, saw a skirmish, but he said he really didn't understand what was going on. He just heard this lady screaming, and he saw some kind of tussle. And so he yells, hey, leave her alone. He sees the attacker, he sees the man run off. And so he shuts his window, closes his blinds, and goes on about his business. The attacker, after a few moments, he runs off, but he hides and waits, and he realizes that, in fact, the police aren't coming. That, that no one is coming to Catherine's aid. He was fearful that maybe somebody was going to come, he was going to be found out, so he got out of there. Catherine is now limping. She is trying desperately to get to the entrance of her apartment. But before she could make it to the entrance of her apartment building, the attacker came back. And I know this is painful to hear. He stabbed her and stabbed her until she died right there on that sidewalk in front of her apartment building. Absolutely crazy. Absolutely insane that people heard her screaming for her life. If you're like me and you hear that story, my thought, my question was, how could that happen? Why didn't somebody do something? Why didn't somebody enter? How in the world could this happen? Psychologists and scientists, they became very interested in this story, and so they actually began studying this, and here's what they found. They found what they call the bystander effect, and here's what it says. That the greater the number of people present, the less likely people are to help a person in distress. You heard that right. The greater the number of people present, the less likely people are to help a person in distress. It seems like it would be the exact opposite, doesn't it? I mean, as you hear that story, don't you think, I want, if, if I could pick, if I were in distress, I want a hundred people to be around. I don't want one person to be around. I want more people. And yet scientists tell us that it's actually less likely you receive help if the more people that are present. And they've come up with two primary reasons. The first is what's called the diffusion of responsibility. The diffusion of responsibility. And so here's what it says. If I'm around and you're in distress, I realize you're in distress, and I realize there's nobody else that can help, and so I come to your aid. But if there are other people around, I am more inclined to wait. I am more inclined to say, well, uh, should I jump in? And, and, and I don't feel solely responsible for helping you because, well, there's all these other people and they could help you too. And why do I have to be the only one to do anything? Do you guys remember, you remember your minimum wage job days? You remember those days? I, I, the thing I, I vividly remember is that in the minimum wage job days, there were responsibilities that were assigned to everybody. And if it's everybody's job, it's whose job? It's nobody's job. Some of you have maybe heard it this way. If it's somebody's job, then it's nobody's job. And so the diffusion of responsibility says, 
Well, if it's my job and your job and your job and your job and your job, then the job may not get done. The second reason that the bystander effect happens is the need to behave in correct and socially acceptable ways. For us, uh, we may realize, we may really know at the core of who we are that this person is in distress, but yet as we look at all the other people who are around, well, they should know she's in distress too. And, and so we begin to rationalize it to, our, to ourselves well, maybe it's not as bad as what I'm thinking. Maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I'm going too far. And so in many cases, because of these two reasons, the bystander effect says the more people that are around, the less likely anybody is to help. What makes this especially heinous is that in the case of Catherine Genevieve on that night in March of 1964, the New York Times reported later that there were 30 Eight eyewitnesses. 38 people heard this young lady screaming and pleading for her life. The first witness that they interviewed said, I am sure that this started, the screaming started at 3.20 a.m. And yet when they went back and checked with police, they found that the first call to police was not until 3.50 a.m. A full 30 minutes later, because the bystander effect. Because there's a lot of people around. And so why is it just my job? Why is it just on me? Guys, why do I bring this up? Because I wholeheartedly believe the reason that we don't see a chain reaction happening in Mount Olive and Calypso and Dudley and Faison and Marmot, the reason why we don't see people being won to Jesus in large numbers, the reason why we don't see revival happening all around us is because of the bystander effect. Because there's a lot of Christians... And I'll put, I'm, I'm right there. I'm not saying, I'm not wagging my finger at any of you. I'm saying there are a lot of us who are standing around and we are watching as people die and go to hell. And, and the thought is, uh, who's my neighbor? Anybody who's around me. Anybody who I'm near. And yet, how often do I make sure that I tell them about Jesus? My neighbor is my opportunity. Several years ago, I saw a play. It's called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. And uh, in this play, one of the scenes that I will never forget, I've forgotten most of the play, but in this drama, there's one scene that I'll never forget. It's four teenagers. They're in a car, and they're doing some dumb stuff, and they end up dying that night on the highway, and they appear before God in judgment, and three of them... He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. But then there's one who he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And at just that moment, a demon bursts out onto the stage, comes and grabs this guy, and as he's being pulled away by this demon, he's telling the people who are being taken to heaven, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say something? Why, why didn't you tell me? And then he's dragged off stage and it goes quiet just like that. Guys, what a powerful thought. Now, I don't think Scripture teaches that the judgment is going to happen like that. But my point in saying that is, what a powerful thought. To know that there could be people 
who are in relationship with us. There could be people who we work with, people who are our neighbors, people who are close to us. And what if they got to judgment? And they would say, I never heard. I I wish I'd have had more opportunities. They never said anything. My neighbor is my opportunity. I think Paul teaches this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's 6 through 9 is what I got, but I'm going to just read the top part. Paul says, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God's been making it grow. Paul here is saying, we all play a part. I didn't do it all. I played a part. Apollos played a part. God played a part. And so the takeaway is, if I will do the most with the opportunities that I have with the people around me, then I know I've done everything I can. But the question is, am I making the most of the opportunities I have to tell others about Jesus and to share my faith. Let's let's keep going. I want to circle back around and talk about the Samaritan for just a second. We're back at verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, read that next part with me, he felt compassion. Let's everybody read it. He felt compassion. The good Samaritan did something that the priest and the Levite didn't do. He felt compassion and he sprung into action. He felt compassion and he sprung into action. What did he do? I I see three things, probably more. Number one, he was willing to be inconvenienced. He was willing to be inconvenienced. Now we know from Jesus' teaching that this Samaritan was on a journey. He was headed somewhere and yet he stopped. He stopped right in the middle of his journey to help someone. And and he was inconvenienced in the sense that, again, this road is dangerous. There are robbers all around. So he literally puts his life on the line to help this man. Number two, he was willing to invest his time. He gets off his beast. He He cleans this guy up. He bandages him up. He puts him on his donkey. He brings him to the inn. He he does all of this. He He stays with him overnight. He is willing to invest his time. And then number three, he was willing to invest his own resources. He gives two denarii, and he tells the innkeeper, do what you need to do, and if I owe you more, I will come back and pay you. Guys, when we begin to be on fire for Jesus, when we begin to win people for Jesus, it may cost us something. The priest and the Levite knew it was going to cost them something, and for them, it was more than they were willing to pay. It may cost us. When we start talking to others about Jesus, it may inconvenience us. It may take our time. We may have to invest those things, but are we truly willing to identify with the Good Samaritan And do these things to reach the lost. Let's finish the parable out. Verse verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So Jesus asks the lawyer this question. Which of these three, now that you've heard all of this, which of these three was a neighbor? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy to him. Notice, he can't even say Samaritan. 
He, he doesn't like, so at, at the core of who, he doesn't even like this, but he understands the point Jesus is trying to make. And so then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Guys, that is my challenge to you. Go and do the same. Will you feel compassion and will you spring into action? Knowing that it may cost you something. Knowing that you may be inconvenienced. Are we willing to share our faith? Are we willing to tell other people the reason for the hope and the love that is within us? Amen. Amen. I want to do something today. I want to close out uh, just here at the altar up front. So if you would, just everybody right now, stand up right where you are. We're just going to close out in prayer right down front. Uh, I'm not going to, we're not going to take long. So for those of you that this is the first time you're here, we're not going to take long. Please don't leave. I just want to close out in prayer. As you're coming, let me... Let me tell you a story. Go ahead and pack in nice and tight. We're one big family. Come in close. I'll tell you this story as you're coming. Uh, the other day, I was in Goldsboro, and I hate being around Berkeley Boulevard around 5 o'clock. It will. You've heard that saying, it'll make a preacher cuss? I cannot confirm that, but I'll just say... Berkeley Boulevard around 5 p.m. is challenging, okay? And so I'm there, and I'm trying to get out, and, and I'm trying to inch forward, and I've got somewhere to be, and I know I've done it to myself. Why am I here? I knew, and so, all right. And so I'm waiting, patiently at first, and I'm waiting, and nobody's letting me out. And you know, you do that thing where you inch up a little bit. You let them know, like, hey, I'm here. Inch. You let me, Hey. And I inched forward and I inched forward. And here's, here's something that's interesting about all of us as humans. If, if a person doesn't want to let you in, I've noticed they don't look at you. Everybody's driving by me like this. You know, they're just... Or they're on their phone or they're on the radio or the, anything but to look at the guy who's trying to get out. And so literally, this is not like, you know... Exaggerate. Literally 10 minutes later, I am still trying to get out. And now I'm like, dear Lord, help me, Jesus, because I cannot. What is wrong with people? Why won't they let a brother in, you know? And so finally, here comes a car, and they stop at just the right place. But not to let me in. They're, they're like, all these cars are six inches from each other. They want me to know, you know, there's no chance. And so this car stops about six inches from the car front. But there's a young girl in the passenger seat. And she doesn't know the rule. She doesn't know you're not supposed to be looking at me. And so I look at her and I begin to go. And what happened next was so magical. She taps her mom on the shoulder and she's like, And the mom gives me one of these. You know, just go, just go. I didn't think to tell my daughter about the rule, you know, so just go. What happened in that moment? In that moment, 
where that young girl and I made eye contact and where I pleaded. I wasn't just a delay. I wasn't a car who was going to get in the way. At that point, I was a person who needed help. And this young girl wanted to help me. Here's my point, guys. As we begin talking about winning people to Jesus, as we begin, uh, as we finish actually talking about winning people to Jesus, and as we approach Easter, my challenge is make it personal. Make it personal. Do we see the people around us as an inconvenience? Well, if I talk to them, then they're going to delay my teeth out. Well, if I talk to them, I'm going to be a little late. Well, if I talk to them, or do we see them as a person? Because to those people around us, they're just somebody to us. But to someone else on this earth, that's their everything. And if they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, it would mean the world. Because that is somebody's son or daughter or nephew or aunt. And there are people who have got their names on a prayer wall. And there are people who have got their names in a prayer journal. And they are begging, God, would you save them? Who is my neighbor? Anyone who I'm near. And my neighbor is my opportunity. So I want to pray for us that we would go forth from this place and be soul winners, that we would be intentional about looking for that. Heavenly Father, God, we stand before you now at your altar. And Lord, I'll confess, there have been times when I have been so wrapped up in my stuff and my own desires and my own pursuits that I have not acknowledged a nudge I've not, I've not responded to you and your nudge to talk to someone, have a conversation about faith in God. And so, Father, I'm sorry. I, I, I just I ask for forgiveness. And I pray that from this moment forward, God, that you would put in all of us a desire to see people reached for you. God, I think about how much you love each and every person here, how much you love all your kids. Well, God, even those lost people, those lost people are still your children. You love your lost kids. As a matter of fact, your word says that you're such a good shepherd that you will leave the 99 to go find the one because that's how much you care about the one kid who is lost. God, I pray right now that you would break our heart for the things that break your heart. I pray, God, that we would be sensitive to your nudging, sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we would be prayerful about those people who we know that don't know Jesus Christ. And God, that we would see them take that step, that they would have that eternal life with you in heaven for all of eternity, and that they would have an abundant life here on this earth because they would say yes to a relationship with you. God, we can't do it on our own, but we can play our part. And so, Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would help us respond to the opportunities we have. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.